as we open up, as we begin Nehemiah chapter 11, in the final chapters of this great book tonight, something is lacking. Now, it's been great. We've seen revival in the land. We've seen the people confessing their sin. We've seen a restoration of the Feast of Tabernacles and celebration. Lots of good things going on, even to the point of the Declaration of Dependence in Nehemiah chapter 10, where the 84 leaders and priests and Levites sign off on that declaration. We are going to follow you, Lord. We're going to be obedient to you. But as we begin in chapter 11, something is still lacking. There's an emptiness in Jerusalem, quite literally. For all the good things that have happened, there is yet a void. Back in chapter 7, verse 4, we have a hint of this, a clue about what's going on. Nehemiah 7, 4 tells us the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. Oh, they had built the wall. They had rebuilt the temple before with Ezra, you recall. But the people are not moving back into the city. Jerusalem, for the most part, is pretty wide open. A lot of houses not rebuilt that had been destroyed back in 586. We're talking a hundred years later now. And the city is still not fully inhabited. This surprises me. Because wouldn't you think, if you were one of the exiles, and you came out of Babylon, and you headed back to Judah, wouldn't you think the prime piece of real estate would be Jerusalem? Wouldn't that I mean the heart of the nation? Isn't that where you would want to gather, to, to, to live to rebuild there first, and then maybe from there to spread out on into the land. Psalm 137 verse 1 says, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Verse 5 of that same psalm, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So, to the Jewish heart and the Jewish mindset, Jerusalem is the heart of their faith. It's the heart of their existence. It is, it is the thing, even today. And it's the sticking point with the Palestinians who want to see it divided. And the Jews are saying, no. No, it's our capital. We will not divide Jerusalem. Well, why haven't they filled the city? Why hadn't they rebuilt the houses and huddled together in tight fellowship and encouraging their neighbors and their friends? Why not gather there first? Well, I was thinking through this. Perhaps the responsibility was just too great. The wall was bad enough to try and get that reconstructed, but maybe as they looked around the city and they saw the devastation and the houses torn down, they just thought, it's too much. It's too much work. Temple's one thing, the wall's another, but... But to rebuild, maybe the relocation itself was a hardship. As they came back, some would have come back to their lands of inheritance. You know, their old houses that were destroyed but rebuilt. Their fields, their farmlands, their vineyards. Perhaps to relocate from there into Jerusalem was was too much to ask. Maybe the requirements of holy living. This, I think, hits a little close to home for some of us. The requirements of holy living. They're in the shadow of the temple. And to realize, wow, if I'm right here, I'm going to have to live right. If I'm out in the suburbs, I'm not quite so noticed in my lifestyle and in the things I do. But to live in Jerusalem, that's a little too religious for the common man. Maybe the risk was too great. Again, these were days of distress. A lot of pressure from outside. Lots of threats of terror. 
Maybe for some it was just the fact that the old days were reminded. They would look out and think of the glory days. And it was just too much. It's hard to go back somewhere that you've been burned. I don't know if you've ever been burned in a church. If you've ever been hurt in a church situation. And even the idea of going back to those people. To that group. Even to walk into that building and and to feel those feelings. It's tragic that there is such... There's such a unified understanding of even that statement. A lot of people have been hurt in churches. Well, whatever the reason, the leaders determined to address the problem. We have got to get people back into the city. So, verse 1, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So we know, and we do this all the time, we look at what was written before and we say, okay, how does that impact us? How does that apply here? It was written for us to learn, to be comforted, to be encouraged. So what's going on here? Well, remember, Nehemiah, I'll tell you one more time. Well, I may tell you again on Sunday. Nehemiah's name is Comforter. Comforter of Yah. Nehemiah the Comforter of God. And he comes back to build the wall around the people. And as we've talked about, the book of Nehemiah gives insight into the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, and the wall that he builds around us. Not so much about around the Spirit, although he does. The temple is a picture of the Spirit. But as we read, our spirits are sealed for salvation the day we believe. But the soul, man, that's where I struggle. The place of my reason, my thinking. That's where my faith is worked out. And my soul needs some protecting. And so the Spirit comes and hems me in behind and before. He works in and around my soul, encompassing me like a wall of security and protection. So if we're going to take Nehemiah as a picture or a type of the Holy Spirit, and Jerusalem, this spacious but empty city, as a picture of our souls, and I know some of you are thinking, wait, did he just call us empty-headed? That what's going on here? There is a parallel. There's something to see here even tonight. While our spirits are saved, our souls can still lie in ruin. While we have a, a seat at the table eternally, temporarily, we still have pain, we still have some hardship, we still have that emptiness. Some suffer from a hollow Christianity. As a pastor, I know this, I've had so many conversations where I sit down with someone and they're saying, you know, I believe, but I just, I'm feeling empty. It's it's not connecting inside. I don't know if you've been there. I've been there myself. I think we all have seasons where we're just saying, Lord, you know, the psalmist, Psalm 77, he's crying out all night long. Until his eyes are so dry he can hardly close them. Until his tongue is clinging to the roof of his mouth saying, Lord, how long? Where are you? It's emptiness. And I think we still can struggle with that. But gang, we need more than rebuilt souls. We need refilled souls. We need our souls completely filled up with the Holy Spirit. And to do that, we need to relocate to Jerusalem. We need to join the people and fill up the city. The city of Jerusalem, think about this, was a place of worship. 
and sacrifice. And so the people would come from all over Judea, all over Israel in the early days, to Jerusalem for worship and sacrifice. It was a place of feasting and celebration, and the people would journey and come into Jerusalem to experience the feasts and the celebrations. And it was even a place where they could run to in times of trouble. What a picture for us. The Jewish people would say, yeah, I want to be there for the feast. Yes, I love being there for the celebration. I like to come for worship, and I'll come when I'm struggling. But to live there? You want me to live there? Well, that's, that's another thing altogether. Most of the exiles did not want to make that move back to the city. How like the church that really is. I'll come to the church for worship and sacrifice. Do my ministry there. I love the feast and the celebration with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll even run to the church when I am in trouble. But live there? (laughs) Wait a minute. Hang on, Pastor. That's what we pay you for, right? (laughs) Restoration to the Lord invites relocation to where the Lord is. To the place of the Lord. We are invited, every one of us, to an intimacy with Jesus far beyond showing up once or twice a week. I'm not talking about being here in this barn every day. You know that. The church is us. We are the church. And the desire I believe God has for all of us, and I believe truly for the Bridge Christian Fellowship, is that we more and more become a people who want to be together in His presence. Not compartmentalize. That's what the word secular means. It means to compartmentalize. And we have our secular life and our spiritual life. And God says, no, I want your secular life. See, I've given you all of my spirit. Well, there are some compartments. There are some streets in your Jerusalem that you're not allowing me to visit. There are some houses you're not letting me into in your soul. And I want to be there as well. Why does it matter so much? Why can't I just go on about living my saved life and living my secular life? And, and a lot of people do, unfortunately. I want to point something out to you. We read this in the, in the book of Matthew. Jesus tells a parable. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, He says, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Well, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. And in this parable, he's talking about Israel. I believe he's talking about Israel in his day. How do you know that? Because he goes on to say, that's the way it will also be with this evil generation. I also believe that's why in Jesus' day there were so many demonic possessions. You see, the people of Israel had cast out their idols. They went into captivity. And remember we said this, when they came back, the cure worked. They were not idolatrous anymore. They never would be again. But though the idols and and the demonic uh, presence of the idols was cast out, there was nothing to fill it in. It remained empty. And when you, when I, as, as Christians... When we cast out the bad, when we receive that restoration from the Lord, and we cast out the bad, but we don't refill that empty place, we are in danger. At best, of living lives of difficulty. At worst, of 
the place being filled with something we don't want it to be filled with. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, in, in Jesus' day, weren't there synagogues? Weren't there rabbis? Wasn't the Sanhedrin there and the temple? Yes. Religion. They had refilled the land with religion, but not with faith. And so there was an emptiness. And so we can do that. Jesus doesn't want to fill anyone with religion. Tragically, across 2,000 years, we've settled into this place where people say, Yes, Lord, I want you. I give my life to you. And then they settle into religion. And religion is empty. It's rules and regulations. But it doesn't fill the heart. It doesn't fill the soul. It doesn't allow the spirit to move where he wants to move. And to do what he wants to do. I I said this Sunday, this is my new mantra, at least for this week, we don't need more of the Holy Spirit. We need to yield more of ourselves to the Holy Spirit. He's given us His entire self. How much more can He give us? We are the problem, not Him. It's us who have compartmentalized. So how do we go about this filling? Well, they want to bring people back into the city. They determine they're going to begin to do this. Number one, if you want to jot some things down, we relocate with the Spirit voluntarily. So the first thing to recognize is it's your call. You can be filled with the Spirit or not. You can have a little of the Spirit. You can have a lot of the Spirit. It depends on how much of yourself, how much of myself we are willing to yield. If you want to yield it all, guess what? He will fill you up. But it's a voluntary thing. 50,000 Jews, roughly, are back in the region. As we're told in verse 1, they cast lots that one out of ten would live in Jerusalem. So roughly 5,000 to come back and live in the holy city. Verse 1 indicates that that was done by lot. In other words, they were drafted. (laughs) They cast lots. And if your lot, if you got the short stick, you had to relocate. No choice about it. You had to move back into the city and not by choice. But verse 2 indicates that there were also people who volunteered. Who didn't even wait for the lot to be cast. They just said, "I'll, I'll I'll move back. I'll live in Jerusalem. I know we need people here. I'll be part of that party. I'll join you there. And notice verse 2 says, the people blessed all those who volunteered to live there. So there are those who went back by lot, there were those who volunteered, and the volunteers, they truly were blessed for it. And if you relocate with the Spirit voluntarily, guaranteed you're going to be blessed. You will be blessed. Psalm 110 tells us, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Now that verse talks implicitly about the coming kingdom. That in the kingdom, in the day of Jesus' power, there's not going to be a lack of volunteers. Everybody's going to be lining up to say, what can I do for you, Lord? How can I serve? Where can I be? As Jim was saying at rehearsal the other night, uh, and I love that, Jim, he, he was saying, you know, people, people say, what can I do in the church? Where can I fill in? Where can I help? And Jim goes, grab a broom, man. <laughs> there, there's work to be done. There's always something to be done. Just do it. Just step up and do it. And that's the way it's going to be like in, in the millennial kingdom. But while this verse talks about the kingdom, it also indicates something to us. Let me read it again. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. My friends, the best way for us to experience the power of God is voluntarily. It's to volunteer freely, to choose to live in it. To be those who say, before the city's rebuilt, before everything is perfect, before the kingdom arrives, those who say, I volunteer to serve you, Lord, before I see your glory. Before you work wonders and miracles in my life, I volunteer. I am in. And if you're one of those who makes that voluntary uh, move, the honor won't just come from men 
It will come from the Lord. One of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture, I've shared this with you before, Luke 12, 37. Jesus said, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He, talking about the Master, will gird Himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and He will come up and wait on them. That is almost disturbing. To think that we arrive in heaven where Jesus is and He says, Oh, alright, alright, Mike, have, have a seat. Sit down. John, sit down right over here. Spencer, right over here. Jackie, I need you right here. And we sit down. What, what's he doing? What? And all of a sudden, he, he wraps the towel around his waist. He, he puts on the apron. And he starts to bring the bread. And he starts to serve us. What would you do? I'd be like Peter. Ah, uh-uh, no. No, no. You're not washing my feet, Lord. I can't even imagine that. Of course... We have to remember that in heaven things are backwards. You see, in heaven the highest position is that of servant. And so Jesus will just be doing what the highest position does. But we will, you will be blessed if you volunteer now for more of the Spirit. Verse 3. Verse 3 continuing on. Tells us, now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, each lived on his own property and in their cities, the Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Verse 4. Some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin from, uh, lived in Jerusalem from the sons of Judah. And he's going to give us a couple names here. Athaiah. And down in verse 5, Maasiah, son of Baruch. And down in verse 6, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 able men. So these are of the tribe of Judah. 468 is their number. Verse 7. Now these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu. And down in verse 8. Gabai and Salai. 928 men of the tribe of Benjamin. Those two men specifically are listed. And then verse 9. Joel, the son of Zechri, was their overseer. And Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second in command of the city. It goes through and lists these different guys. Verse 10, from the priests now. So we have Judah, we have Benjamin, we have their numbers from the priests, Jediah and Yakin, Saraiah, the son of Hilkiah. Verse 11, he's the leader of the house of God, we're told. Verse 12, and their kinsmen who performed the work of the temple, 822. And then is named Adaiah, the son of Jehoram. Down in verse 13, his kinsmen, heads of father's households, 242. And Amashai, and their brothers, verse 14, valiant warriors, 128, and their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. In verse 15, now we get the Levites listed, Shemiah, the son of Hashub. In verse 16, we have Shabbatai and Yotzebad. Verse 17, Matanya, and I'm going to say something else about him in just a moment, but down in the end of verse 17, Abda is listed. Verse 18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284, and also the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brethren who kept watch at the gates were 172. If you add all that up, it's 3,044 people. 3,044 are numbered of those who now are living back into, or are called to live back in Jerusalem. Now, verse 17 is interesting, especially the timing on where we're at in our calendar year. Matanya... We're told, son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader at the beginning, in, in beginning, the thanksgiving at prayer. So this was the thanksgiving guy. Matanya was, was the one who led thanksgiving prayer. 
Let's talk turkey for a moment. There's something wonderfully filling about Thanksgiving. No pun intended. Okay, pun intended. There's something wonderfully filling about Thanksgiving, but I'm talking spiritually. About this whole concept of giving thanks. Few things relocate our attitudes like devoting ourselves to Thanksgiving in prayer. So not only are we called to relocate uh, voluntarily, we're called to relocate thankfully, to be a thankful people. I mention that because as you read through chapters 11 and 12, if you just do a cursory reading, you'll discover five times Thanksgiving is mentioned. I think that's so cool, seeing as Thanksgiving's a week from Thursday. Five times Thanksgiving is mentioned, and the importance of ongoing Thanksgiving is specifically referenced with the relocation of these people into Jerusalem. Thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And listen to what happens. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thanksgiving has the effect, gang, of guarding heart and mind. Kind of like the wall, isn't it? The wall around the city, guarding my soul. The wall around the temple, guarding my heart. We are guarded hearts and minds if we are people who are approaching God in prayer thankfully. Now, there are those who cry out to the Lord in prayer uh, problematically. Oh Lord, I've got this going on, this going on. I can't have a life without you. And, and that's good. You need to be praying to the Lord for all occasion. There are those who come to Him with a list of requests. I need you to take care of these things, Father. But to just come to Him thankfully. If you want to be filled up of more of the Spirit, more of those spaces filled with the Spirit in your life, approach Him, relocate, thankfully. Thanksgiving, by the way, is truly a gift. Matanya's name... Matanya's name means gift of Yah, gift of Yahweh. And he's the one who brings the thanksgiving prayer. Thanksgiving is a gift of Yahweh. Something the Lord has provided for us. I know it sounds interesting. You would think, well, isn't thanksgiving a gift from us to the Lord? No, it's not. It works the other way around. Because the more thankful I am to the Father, the more I am filled up with the Father. I get blessed by blessing Him. It's marvelous. And that's the way the Lord works and the Spirit works in our lives. Thanksgiving is a gift. Swells our hearts in gratitude and it's a vital aspect of spiritual worship. Well, going on in verse 20. The rest of Israel, of the priests and of the Levites, were in all the cities of Judah, each on his own inheritance. So now we've moved out of Jerusalem. Since the temple servants were living in Ophel, Ziha, and Gishpah, and they were in charge of the temple service. So these are guys living outside, they come in to do their work, and they go back out to live. Now the overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem, so this is a man listed who is in Jerusalem, Uzi, the son of Bani. You do not mess with Uzi. Right? His name actually means strong. So Uzi's strong, but he's living there in Jerusalem, and he's named. And down in verse 23... It tells us that there was a commandment concerning the king, uh, from the king concerning them and a firm regulation for the song leaders day by day. So Uzi was a strong, a strong singer for the Lord and a leader of the sons of Asaph to go in and do all the singing, which was daily commanded. And uh, Pethiah, Pethiah, verse 24, the son of Meshazabel, 
Pathia's name means freed by Jehovah, freed by Yahweh. And he also, like Uzi and like all the others listed above, he lived in Jerusalem and he was, the, verse 24 tells us, the king's representative in all matters concerning the people. So those two guys are named. They live in Jerusalem. Now watch this, verse 25. Now as for the villages with their fields, some of the sons of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its towns, in Debon and its towns, in Jacobzil and its towns, in Yeshua, in Melada, in Bethpelet, in Hatzerjul, Beersheba, verse 28, Ziklag, and Makona, verse 29, in Ramon, in Zorah, and Yarmud, verse 30, Zanoah, Adullam, Lachish, and its fields, Azika, and its towns. They encamped from Beersheba as far as the valley of Hinnom. Verse 31 says, The sons of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, then Aijah, and Bethel and its towns, Anatot, Nob, Anania, Hatzor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zoboim, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono. <laughs> Hate to live there. Where do you live? Oh no. The valley, there we go. The valley of craftsmen. Listen, I, I really think the worst thing the wind can do tonight is blow the doors off. And if that happens, we'll just venture on home, okay? That'll be our deal. Verse 36 from the Levites and some divisions in Judah belong to Benjamin. Now, I read that list for a reason. Only two names are given at that point. And those two names live in Jerusalem. And there's a list of several other names in the first part of the chapter. They all live in Jerusalem, but not one name is given of a person living outside Jerusalem. Not a single one. All the names we read were the places, the locations, not the people. I point that out because remember the verse, Psalm 112, verse 6, the righteous will be remembered forever. God remembers His righteous ones. He remembers those who volunteer. He remembers those who choose to move into the city, who choose to be filled. Those are the ones that He specifically names and remembers. Now you might say, okay, I I get what you're saying, Pastor Rick, but, but wait a minute. Are you saying that all those living in Jerusalem are the righteous remembered? But we know some of them were drafted. We know some of them are not there voluntarily. And yet they're listed. They're among the so-called righteous there in Jerusalem. If they were drafted, if they didn't volunteer, why would they be remembered? How are they any different from all those people who lived outside of the city? Listen, and this is important for all of us. They may not have had the purest motives. They may not even have gone in by choice, but they went in. They did go. They may not have chosen it themselves, but they relocated obediently, just the same. And there's something to be said for that. Number three in our listing here, relocate with the Spirit obediently. Talked about obedience a little bit on Sunday and being obedient to the Word. Not just showing up for Bible study, but taking what we hear and living it out. And applying it to our lives in every nook and cranny of who we are to be obedient. But let me ask you, have you ever served the Lord when you didn't want to? I have. Many a time. Have you ever had motives that weren't right in serving the Lord? I'm sure none of you have had wrong motives, even as you serve God. But i got to confess, my motives are not always good. There are times when it's about me. There are times when I do something because it will have direct result for me. Or because I have some other, you know, 
idea behind what I'm doing. It comes off as good. And oh, yeah, good job, Rick. Way to go. And, and inside I'm going, yeah, if you only knew. <laughs> Real motive. I'm not really that bad. But here's the deal. If I question every nuance of every motive in my service to Jesus Christ, I will freeze up. Because don't you know that on almost a daily basis there's something we're doing for the Lord and we find ourselves crumbling or we find our, our motives a mixed bag? You know, sometimes we come to the Lord altruistic. Man, I'll do anything for you. And other times we have something we want. We're like my kids, you know, coming to me saying, Hannah's just great at this, putting her head on my shoulder and going, Dad, I love you. And I just say, what do you want? What are you asking for? Can I stay out a little later tonight? She bats the eyes. Motives. But I'm glad she puts her head on my shoulder. You know, I'm glad as a father that she comes to me. And I'm glad she's obedient when I give her that, you know, curfew. Sometimes, gang, sometimes the right attitude comes after the right behavior. In fact, a lot of the time that's what happens. I choose to obey first, and then my attitude begins to adjust. It's not the other way around. If I overanalyze it, if I think, okay, I've got to have perfect motives before I act, it's the paralysis of analysis. I'm thinking too much. Just do it. Just obey. Just say, Father, that's what you want. Whatever my motives are, whatever my reason behind it, I'm setting that aside. This is for you. This is what you want. This is what I will do. Just because I don't feel like doing what I'm called to do doesn't mean I don't do it. Lots of things in our lives we don't feel. I don't feel like getting up when the alarm goes off in the morning. Ever. But I do. I need to. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And I love this. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. How do you do that? How do you take a thought captive to obedience? You obey. You obey and the thought will come along later. The motive will adjust if you're walking in obedience. It's, it's marvelous how this happens. Shifting behavior first. Though I may question, though I may not understand what God is calling me to, obedience to the Spirit leads me into agreement with the Spirit. Wow. So you're saying motives don't matter. No, I'm saying motives will change with obedience. So if we relocate in the Spirit obediently, we're doing it whether we feel like it or not. That's not the issue. You all are here, and and I... I'm going to assume good motives for everybody being here tonight. But I'm probably right in saying there's got to be one or two of you who when you were getting in the car and the rain was coming down and the wind was thrashing, you you thought twice. You thought, could you stay home? Could you just tuck in? But I won't get my name checked on the attendance sheet. (laughs) Whatever the motive when you started out, you're here. Obedience always alters the motive after the fact. Well, more names are given here in chapter 12 as we continue on. Uh, Mostly these are now specifically the families of priests who came back now with Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Nehemiah is going to jump back and he's going to relist these guys. And it's verses 1 through 21 are just listings of the priests. If you look down there, verse 1 says Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotol, and Yeshua. And remember, we talked about them in the book of Ezra. They came back. And then all these other guys listed... It says down there in verse, just after verse 7, these were the heads of the priests and their kinsmen in the days of Yeshua, 
And then it tells who the Levites were. There's Matanya again in verse 8, who is in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. That's the second of five times you see that word thanksgiving used and repeated here again. And you can follow these names on down. Bakbukia in verse 9, I like that name. Bakbukia. There's Uni. And Yeshua again in verse 10. And I'm not going to read all the names. Skip on down to verse 22 because they're just name after name and these are all the ones again the righteous remembered these are those who took the risk they came back in the first wave with Zerubbabel and Yeshua well verse 22 now as for the Levites the heads of fathers households who were registered in the days of Eliashib Yoyada and Yohanan and Yadua so were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian the sons of Levi the heads of fathers' households were registered in the book of the Chronicles up to the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. The heads of the Levites were Hashabiah and Cherubiah and Yeshua were the sons of Cadmiel with their brothers opposite them. Watch this, to praise and give thanks. There it is again. Thankfulness. As prescribed by David, the man of God, the division corresponding to division. Matanya, Bakbukia, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talman, and Akub were gatekeepers keeping watch at the storehouses of the gates these served in the days of Joachim, the son of Yeshua, the son of Yotzadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. Now, verse 27 says, Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals and harps and liars, I love this description. They, they list all the Levites, and then they say, we're going to go out, or they went out and gathered them all to bring them in for celebration day. And now that the wall having been rebuilt, it's the day of dedication. And what a great day it was. In fact, number four, you might note this, if you want more of the Spirit to fill in those spaces in your soul, relocate with the Spirit gladly. You do it with gladness. This is a glad celebration. Psalm 97 verse 11 reads, Light is sown like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Well, there was gladness in the city this day. And it's wonderful how these things unfold before us. Uh, Of course, though it was a glad, celebratory, exciting time, there was also... Well, everybody who came into the city would have to go back out of the city. There were those who lived there, the celebration going on, but if you didn't live there, you had to make your way there, and then you had to leave. The gladness was here in the city, not there in the suburbs. The gladness was where the people were in the worship of God, where the presence was. I point that out. I was thinking about this today. That if you uh, have you seen those apartment banners on the side of the road every now and then that say, "If you lived here, you'd be home now." Well, they should have put one of those banners up on the eastern wall of Jerusalem. So as the people are walking in, there it is. If you lived here, you'd be home now. My point is this: If you lived in Jerusalem, volunteers and obedient draftees alike, if you lived in the city, the gladness was right at your doorstep. It would be like having an apartment on Central Park West on the day of Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And you just open up the curtains and you sit down with your coffee or your tea and there goes the parade. You have a, a, a front view right there. What a great, I've always wanted to do that. Someday I'm going to meet somebody who has an apartment there in New York looking at I'm going to go visit them and hang out. That would be a great thing. 
And in Jerusalem, those who lived there, man, the city was just humming with gladness and joyfulness. But uh, the people who didn't live in the city, they had all the hassles of getting there. They had their ticketing and their baggage. They had their travel. They had their overnight stays that they had to work out. You know, they had to pay for the rooms or wherever they were going to stay. If they didn't pay, they had to find the relatives and, you know, beg off of them to live for a few days. It was hassles, struggle. And on top of that, at least seven times annually, the men were required by law to make a trek to Jerusalem for the different feasts. If they were following the law, they were supposed to go back seven times a year to head to Jerusalem. Why not just live there, man? Why not just be there? I'm convinced the people in Jerusalem had more gladness, had a better time of it, better celebration than those who came from outside. And such it is with the Spirit. Those who are filling up with the Spirit, those who are present, are always having a more glad time of it than those who just come in and go out. A little bit of God here and go out. A little bit of Jesus here and then back to my life. And what you miss is the gladness and the joy. You want gladness in life? Why not just live there? If we lived there, we would be home by now. Acts chapter 13 verse 2 says, The disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And the joy and the gladness, it just keeps getting better. Watch verse 28. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophetites. From Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Geba and Osmabeth, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people, the gates and the wall. All this preparation takes place. And then in verse 31... Nehemiah is writing, he says, Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs. The word choir there, let's just make note of this, is literally thanksgiving choirs. That's what the word means, thanksgiving choirs. So there are two great choirs that are going to sing songs of thanksgiving. The first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshaiah. And half of the leaders of Judah followed them with Azariah and Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets. And Zechariah, the son of Yonatan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Matanya, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, with his kinsmen. And Shemaiah, Azarel, and Malaliai, and Galaliai, and Maiai, and Netanel, and Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. This is one choir, all headed one direction on top of the wall. The wall is wide. You can walk on it. In fact, you can walk on the wall of Jerusalem today. It's fascinating to do that. And it says in verse 37, at the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. That's one choir goes one gate, one way. The second choir proceeded to the left. While I followed them, Nehemiah says, with half the people on the wall, above the tower of furnaces, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stopped at the gate of the guard. What's going on here? This is great. This glad celebration. Two great Thanksgiving choirs. Nehemiah sets them up, and he sends one singing in this direction around the wall. 
And another one singing in this direction around the wall. They're marching around the wall. They're singing. They're having a massive parade on the wall as they head around. Marching on the wall. Do you remember back in uh, chapter 4? I'll just read it to you. But Tobiah, one of the adversaries of Jerusalem, had this to say. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and he said, Even what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. And now there's a parade on the wall. What's the point? (laughs) Peter writes, 1 Peter 2.15, Such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Nehemiah was not dissuaded from his task. Tobiah is mouthing off. This wall's not going to stand when you're done anyway. You cannot accomplish this. Well, guess what? Wisdom is always proved right by your children. Truth always will out. And here we are just 52 days later, and they're gathered, and they are marching and singing on top of the wall, and the wall is firm, and the wall stands strong. And sometimes, in following Jesus... Sometimes the outcome is hard to see, but if we trust the Lord, He's already seen it. So we can stand on the wall. Going on, it it tells us there in verse 40. Where am I? I lost my place. Verse 40. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I, Nehemiah says, and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniamin, and Micaiah, and Eloiani, and I can't even say his name, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with the trumpets, and Maasiah, Shimei, Eleazar, Utsi, Yohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang. The singers sang. They, they took their stand. I like the sound of that. The Thanksgiving choirs took their stand in the temple. So you got the choirs. And Nehemiah says, so did I. So you have the comforter. You see what you have here? You have thankful worshipers and the comforter are standing together in the temple of God. Number five, is it? Or number six in our list here? It's number five. Relocate with the Spirit confidently. Relocate with the Holy Spirit confidently. Once, once He undertakes construction... You can be sure the building is secure. Once he does something, it stands. His truth stands. We can be confident in this. This is one of the things I think for new believers it's most difficult. When you haven't had a long time of walking with the Lord, you you just start to believe and the doubts creep in. Well, what if he doesn't? What if he's not there? What if what I believe really isn't true? What if parts of the Bible are proved wrong? Now I can tell you as a long-term believer, it's not going to happen. It's not a problem. The wall is sound. The wall is secure. Truth is solid. Hey, the Holy Spirit, first of all, begins construction on the foundation of Jesus Christ, Paul says. There's no other foundation that's been laid but the foundation who is Jesus. That's a solid foundation. You're not falling through that. And then he builds, and he builds truth on that foundation. And truth will not let us down. The wall will stand. But the only way to learn that is by standing on the wall. You can look at the wall and say, boy, it it looks strong. The truth looks good. But until you stand on it, stand for it, you're not going to know. 
We've got to stand, confidently stand on the wall before we know that it's sound. What did Jesus call the Holy Spirit? Well, lots of things, comforter and, and helper, but he also called him three times, John 14, 17, 15, 26, 16, 13. He called him the Spirit of Truth. Spirit of Truth. He's not the Spirit of Speculation. Not the Spirit of Mystery. The Spirit of Guess What? He's the Spirit of Truth. The Proverbs 3.25 says, Do not be afraid of sudden, sudden fear of the onslaught of the wicked when it comes. The Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. My friends as Christians, should we not be the most confident people in the world? We're standing on the foundation of Jesus with the pillars of truth, absolute truth, that we can rely on. And by the way, we're standing in an age, as many of you know, that relativity is the standard. Absolute truth no longer matters. I'll tell you more about that in just a moment. Verse 42 going on says, The singers sang. I like that. With Jezrahia, their, their leader. And on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because... Because God had given them great joy. Even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. It's that gladness that we've been talking about. The singers sang. That word sang is Shema. Shema. It's actually from the root Shema. Shama, Shema. Shema, you might remember the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's called the Shema, the hear. Well, this same word comes from that root, the singers sang, the musical term here for sang is to make yourself heard. To make yourself heard. That is the standard of worship. Not the quality of your voice, not the tune of your ear, not the pitch, not your ability to sing nice notes. Just make your voice heard. Just be heard. I mean, we, we could be the worst sounding church in the entire region, but if we are making our voices heard, it will please the Lord. What does the psalm say? Psalm 84, verse 4, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Anybody can make a joyful noise in, in the Lord, unto the Lord, in all the earth. Make a loud noise, it says, and rejoice and sing praise. When you're speaking of Jesus, make yourself heard. Well, in all this, there's confidence here, there's joyfulness here, gladness, there's obedience, there's thankfulness, there's volunteerism, all this is going on. And verse 44 says, And on that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. For they performed the worship of their God, and the service of purification together with the singers with the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and of his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were leaders of the singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving. There's thanksgiving again to God. So verse 47, All Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah gave the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required and set apart apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portion for the sons of Aaron. Well, wait a minute. That sounds great. And and what, what Nehemiah is saying is the people continued to bring their tithes and their offerings. But I just recall back in chapter 10, they had to make a covenant to do what they weren't doing. So how is it that the Bible can tell us all the days of 
Zerubbabel and Nehemiah that the people were giving. They were doing what they were supposed to do. We know they weren't. We know they had to be returned to that. Ezra had to return them to their tithes and offerings. Nehemiah had to. And then they make this covenant. We're going to do it. We're going to do it, Lord. And now again, it said that they were reappointed to bring the first fruits and the tithes back in verse 44. So how can he say that this had been going on all the time? Aren't there big gaps in Israel's faithfulness? Listen, this is wonderful. There are gaps. Huge gaps in the faithfulness of Israel. Just like in the faithfulness of Rick. There are big gaps. Are there gaps in your faithfulness? I mean, are there, there are holes in your faith? Now, I trust the Lord. I believe in the Lord. But you know, there are those times where the faithful, there are gaps and empty spots. But it's like, here in verse 47, and in our lives, the Lord doesn't even see them. He doesn't see the gaps. He doesn't see the holes in our faithfulness. Because He has the ability of filling in the holes. Where we are faithless, the Bible tells us, He remains faithful. And He fills in the gaps. He does this for us. Cheryl, um, about two years ago, cut an M&M-sized slice off of her thumb. It was gross. Before it started bleeding, she was you know, cutting up a, an apple or a tomato or something, just went sliced. And she looked down, and there it was, sitting on the counter. And it was kind of rocking there. A little flesh-colored M&M. And she looked at it. She, what is that? And then her thumb started to hurt. And she looked down, and blood just started coming out, pouring over her hand. And, and there, she picks it up. Ah, ah, Try to stick it back on, you know. It wouldn't go. And, and so we ended up taking her to the doctor, and you couldn't really stitch it back on at that point. You know, so I ate it, and, and we went, no, I'm kidding. But here's the marvelous thing. Her thumb filled in. I have no idea how. I mean, if you look at it, it's, it's not quite as rounded off as the other thumb, but, but it literally, as it healed, it, it, it filled back. The human body is a marvelous, marvelous thing of creation. But I was thinking, you know, that's what God does. He heals. Well, Jeremiah 3.22, Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Well, how do you heal my faithlessness? I've already been faithless. There are these big gaps in my history. Yeah, but I'm going to fill those in. I will fill. You just come to me in faith. I will fill in your faithless gaps such that Nehemiah can write. In all the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, they gave the portions to the singers. No, they didn't. doesn't matter. God says they did because I'm filling in the gaps. I'm going to overlook that stuff. I'm going to fill it in. I'm going to look at you as faithful if you will come to me in faith. Absolutely mind-boggling. Well, chapter 13, verse 1. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. That's from Deuteronomy 23, verse 5. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Do you remember what's going on here? Ammon and Moab. Ammon and Moab were the sons of Lot by his daughters. Remember when Lot and his wife and daughters, they're rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And his wife looks back and turns into a big salt shaker. And then they continue on 
And the daughters say, we're not going to have, we're living out here in the wilderness with dad, we're not going to have children of our own. They get their father drunk and one by one they go in and sleep with him to get pregnant. It, it's in the Bible. PG-13, you know I mean? It's weird stuff. And it happened. One daughter had a son and named him Ammon. Another daughter had a son and named him Moab. And the Ammonites and the Moabites would then forever be enemies of Israel. Right out of the sin of the parents. Such that when the children of Israel are coming back around and they come into the land of Moab and the Ammonites, they say, hey, can we just have safe passage through here? And, and do you mind as we're walking through? Maybe we can uh, you know, glean a little bit of grain, but we'll just head through. And they say, no, you can't do that. Well, can we just pass through here and we won't even touch anything? No, you can't. As a matter of fact, the Moabites, they hire Balaam, the, the seer. They say, put a curse on Israel. Do you remember the story? It's Numbers 22 through 24. And he tries to curse them, and every time he tries to curse them, he opens up his mouth, and blessing comes out. He cannot curse the people. He can only bless the people. But from that point forward, the Lord said, Ammonites and Moabites, you have no business in the assembly of my people, because you would not receive my people. And so they read this and they discover this. Well, they're still surrounded by Ammonites and Moabites, and so they say, okay, we've got to exclude them, we cannot have them in here. What's interesting here is Ruth was a Moabite. Shouldn't she be excluded from the commonwealth of Israel? Excluded from the assembly? Excluded from the bloodline of Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter 1 verse 5 giving Jesus genealogy and there's Ruth. But you know what's interesting? From the moment that she marries Boaz... She is never again in Scripture called Ruth the Moabitess. She is just called Ruth. Why? Well, Ruth was the one who said in Ruth 1.16 to Naomi, the Jewish mother-in-law, Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Here's the deal. You can't come into the family of God and stay as you are. No Moabite or Ammonite claiming that identity can come into the family and the assembly of God. But if a Moabite or an Ammonite or a Gentile like you and me want to enter in, to be grafted in, we can. We deny the old identity. We die to the old self and we take on the new identity in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, like Ruth, we're grafted in. Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're part of the commonwealth of Israel now. We are children of Abraham through faith. We're not excluded. And even in this day, an Ammonite and a Moabite, if they rejected where they came from to exclusively give their faith to Jehovah, would be allowed access to the assembly of the people. But you don't come to Jesus and stay as you are. You come to Jesus and you reject who you were. Number six, is it? Okay, number six. Relocate with the Spirit completely. Relocate completely. And we're back to this whole issue of the spaces in my soul that I reserve for me. God, you can have all of this, but I'd like to hang on to this. And the Spirit is saying, I want to fill that. I want to fill this area. I'd like to fill you up here. Are you open to that? Every aspect, the cracks, the crevices, the spaces to be filled. What does Paul say? He says he says he wants us to be filled up, Ephesians 3:19, filled up to all the fullness of God. 
I wish I could just stop here. If only Nehemiah had. This is a good place to stop. A lot of things taken care of. A joyful day of celebration. Let's end here, Nehemiah. Close the book. We don't need to know the rest. We'll just ignore it. But we can't stop here. And even this evening we have just a little bit further to go. Because in the rest of chapter 13, we see a Nehemiah we have not seen before. We see him get heated. Angry, frustrated, urgent. In fact, he goes on a righteous rampage. Follow this through, verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, Tobiah the terrorist, Tobiah the adversary who was right there with Sambalit, that picture of Satan, against the people, wanting to kill the people and undermine their work, well, he has figured out a way to insert himself in and among the people. Tobiah. And so Elisha, the priest, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. They gave him an apartment in the temple, gang, in the storerooms of the temple. They said, oh, you can have it. And they cleared out all that other stuff so that Tobiah, the adversary, the terrorist, could have a place to live. Unbelievable. But during all this time, Nehemiah writes, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of the Lord. Now think about this. To prepare a room for Tobiah, they would have to move out the worship. They'd have to remove the things of of worship, grain offerings and frankincense and utensils and wine and oil. They'd have to move that out of the way. Tobiah is a picture of false religion. This guy is, is what false religion is for us. When it comes in and it begins to take residence, fake, phony, legalistic religion pushes the spirit out, pushes out true spiritual worship, and replaces it with a different presence. Remember, Tobiah means Yah is good. Yahweh is good. My name means Yahweh is good. I'm one of you. I've married in. I'm part of this deal. But he's not. He's wicked and evil, and Nehemiah knows it. Who knows but that Tobiah is using this opportunity until he can gather people around him, stir up strife and division. But he's wicked, and it's called out here. And Nehemiah is absolutely furious. He's absolutely furious. It was very displeasing to me, verse 8. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. You remember who else did that? Jesus did went into the temple and saw this false religion in terms of monetary things, the selling of doves and pigeons and money changers, and he threw them all out. He was livid. And I gave an order that they cleansed the rooms. Fumigated, I think. And I returned there the utensils of the house, the utensils of the house of God and the grain offerings and the frankincense. He comes in there and, and here's this guy and he throws him out, which is how you handle false religion. By the way, what does false religion do? False religion mocks the truth. False religion would undermine 
That which is true and right and good and biblical and doctrinally sound. False religion tries to take us off in another direction. That's what Tobiah did. Back in chapter 2 and verse 19, we see him with Sambalat. And it says, when they heard of it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Mocking is the first thing out of this guy's mouth. That's what false religion does. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where's the promise of His coming? False religion. Churches do it today. Where's the promise of His coming? When the Holy Spirit is absent, or pushed out, or quenched, as the Bible says is possible, religion, false religion, moves in. It inserts a little doubt. It mocks a confident faith. It causes us, causes people, maybe not of great faith, but it causes people of faith to shrink back into propriety rather than passion. See, when you're in a relationship, you're passionate. When you're in religion, you're proprietous. Make sure you're dressed right. You say the right things and act in the correct way. If you're passionately in love with Jesus Christ, all that's taken care of. You don't have to worry about it. So how do you deal with false religion? You give it the boot. And that's what they do with Tobiah. Give him the boot just as Jesus did when the money changers turned the house of God or tried to turn it into a den of robbers. So Nehemiah deals with this Tobiah once and for all. He's gone. Verse 10. I also discovered that the portion of the Levites had not been given them. So that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok the scribe, Pideah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Matanya, for they were considered reliable. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. And then interesting, verse 14, he says a prayer. Nehemiah says, Remember me for this, O my God. And do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Here's this man, he's had to deal with Tobiah. He turns around, now he's got to deal with the lack of the tithes and the distribution to the Levites. It's frustrating. But then, verse 15, it gets worse. In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. This is one of the things we talked about Sunday. They promised, they declared that they would not do. Nehemiah goes away, he comes back, they're back at it. Tobiah living there the tithes not being offered the Sabbath being ignored so I admonished them verse 15 on the day they sold food also verse 16 tells us also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath even in Jerusalem Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so that our God brought on us and on the city all this trouble? Yet you're adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What does he mean by this? He is frustrated. He's discouraged. It seems as though Nehemiah's work is being undermined at every turn. 
Bails the wall, gets things going. Okay, I think things are settled now. I'm going to head back and do a little more cupbearing for a while. Then he hears word, something's not right, comes back to Jerusalem, and it's falling apart. Now, wouldn't you just be sick of it? It's like two steps forward, 1.999 repeating steps back. We're not getting anywhere here. And he says, you guys, you're, you're, you're adding to all the wrath. You're making it worse. i got to clean out Tobiah's room. i got to return the Levites to their post. The Sabbath needs guarding. It came about that just as it grew dark, verse 19, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. I'm going to shut down this town, he's saying. And then I stationed some of my servants at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Amazing. Once or twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. (laughs) He looks over the wall and there they are. And what do you think they're doing? They're they're looking to see, does anyone want to buy our wares? I know they shut the gates, but maybe someone will open the gate of Ephraim for us and we can sneak some stuff in. Maybe, maybe over here at the Dung Gate. That'd be a good place. We can get some stuff in. And Nehemiah looks over the wall and he sees them there. And this is such a picture of evil. They shut the gates to evil and it's lurking right outside the gate. It's still there. Waiting for the slightest weakness, the slightest hint of a buyer. Luke 4 verse 13 tells us when the devil had finished every temptation, he left Jesus until an opportune time. That's what these guys were doing, looking for opportunity. Someone who wants to buy our wares? What's great about this, in Luke, he left Jesus for an opportune time, he would never get it. There would never be an opportune time for the devil to tempt Jesus. Because Jesus was so strong. Ephesians 4.27 says, Do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't even give him a chance. Don't even crack the gate and go, What do you got on that cart over there? (laughs) Just keep it closed. In fact, Nehemiah goes one better. I warned them, verse 21, and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. For this also remember me, O my God. He's praying this again. Remember me, Lord, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. This prayer creeps out again. What's happening? God, remember me. Help me in this. I'm trying, Lord. But every time we make progress, we slide back would you remember me, Father? I'm, I'm doing everything I can do. Have you ever prayed that? I'm trying here. It doesn't seem to matter. But I'm trying, he prays. Verse 23, fourth and final problem. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, that is Hebrew. It was being lost. But the language of his own people. Interesting. They kept getting lured out by these foreign chicky mamas. You know? She's cute. Ah, She's got it going on. And out they went. And they kept engaging themselves with the foreign women. Kept marrying. And now they're having children. And here's the travesty of it all, gang. The children could not even speak the language of the Jewish people. That's how you destroy a people. 
You cut off their language from one generation to the next. It's one of the most devastating outcomes of interfaith marriages is when the children end up unable to speak the language of faith in Jesus Christ. And we're seeing it in our culture like never before. I was talking with Jim Crouch last night. You know, Jim teaches down at at the high school in Oak Harbor. And uh, Jim was talking about it. He says, you know, every year I ask my students. He, he teaches political classes and social sciences. So he says, I ask my students, where do you stand on the political spectrum? Liberal, you know, a liberal Democrat, a conservative Republican, where do you fall in there? He said, this year, and it, it's been on the increase over the years, but this is the greatest amount so far, the vast majority are of the kids, high school kids, liberal Democrat or libertarian. Almost no... In fact, I think maybe not a single Republican. Now, okay, politically you might say, well, you know, whatever, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Libertarians are conservative fiscally. They are like Republicans in many ways. They want fiscal conservatism. What they don't want is morality. What's being lost here is morality. A, a kid in Jim's class actually said, Jim asked the question about life and, and, and uh, you know, uh, sacredness of life. And he wrote the word abortion on the board and he said, what does this say? And one of the kids in the class said, an unborn, that, you know, what, what's in the womb is just a parasite anyway. I mean, I've heard it called a blob of tissue. I've heard people try to demean it and pretend like it's nothing until it's actually born, that the child in the womb that's a baby, it's a life, they try and undermine what it really is. That's the first time I've ever heard anyone refer to it as a parasite. We are seeing a rise in amorality, that is no morality, greater in this generation than I have ever seen before. Greater than all United States history. And it's not because of multiculturalism, it's because of ecumenism. It's because of this interfaith watering down, breeding out, no faith at all. Now we have kids, a large number of them, and you two are probably quite aware of this, students who have no faith at all. And they don't care about that. It doesn't matter. Hey, do whatever you want. Homosexuality, live how you want. Abortion, no big deal. Morality isn't it. Just set aside values and, and no moral compass is needed. And what people miss is that America was founded on a moral compass of the Ten Commandments, Judeo-Christian values that undergird this country, and right now this country is being undermined. And I go off on this because that's what's happening in Israel. That's what causes countries to begin to fall apart. The children can't even speak the language of Judah. Well, our children fast are losing the language of any kind of faith whatsoever. Remember what Ezra did, by the way, when he came across this same thing, this this intermarrying? Ezra chapter 9, in verse 3, tells us that he said, When I heard about this matter, this this intermingling of of the of the foreign, you know, foreign marriages, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of my hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. That's how Ezra reacted. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me and I sat appalled until the evening offering. That's how Ezra responded. (laughs) How did Nehemiah respond? Verse 25. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) Yeah! 
<laughs> Go get them, Nehemiah. And I made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourself. He is, he's beside himself. I tell you, this is a righteous rampage here. He says, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Yoyada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, intermarrying with the very picture of Satan, the Horonite, so I drove him away from me. <laughs> He's going after him. He sees this kid who's intermarried. He goes, that's it, you're out of here. And he starts chasing him down the streets of Israel. And this guy's gone. And then Nehemiah prays, remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites east in his task. And I arranged for the supply of wood at appointed times and for the first fruits. And he says, Remember me, O my God, for good. I think we're learning that you don't mess with Nehemiah. But think about this, gang. Ezra was a picture of the Holy Spirit. Nehemiah is a picture of the Holy Spirit. As this sin, as this faithless intermarriage is going on, the first time around, the Holy Spirit is grieved. Ezra pulls out his own beard. He sits down appalled. He is just, and he's so upset. And it affects the people. Grieving the Holy Spirit does have its impact on us. When you begin to realize that you're grieving the Lord, and you see that, it does impact us, doesn't it? I don't want him to be sad. I don't want him to look at my behavior. And be sorrowful because of it? But there's another aspect of the Holy Spirit. Just because Nehemiah's name means comforter doesn't mean he's a wimp. And here he comes in another picture of the Spirit. Ezra, the Holy Spirit is grieved by my sin, but here comes Nehemiah, the comforter, another picture of the Holy Spirit, and he can get after me because of my sin as well. He can discipline and in Nehemiah, the discipline begins. As Bill Cosby said, when I came home, my wife told me the kids were messing around, I just would shout, the beatings will begin now. And that's what's going on. Nehemiah might as well have said that. The beatings will begin now. And he acts, and he disciplines, and he is hard-headed about it. He goes after the people. Like I said, I don't want to read this chapter. Because everything else was really cool, and glad, and joyful, and thankful. And then... Nehemiah says, I have had it with you. Words I've used myself. I've had enough of this. I'm done. Nehemiah. Hebrews 12.11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What are we talking about? We're talking about relocating, right? To where the Spirit is. We're talking about tonight through this whole thing. Being in the city, being in the presence of the Spirit. getting Opening up every cupboard, every household, every street, every back alley. Opening it all up in our lives to the work of the Spirit. Holding nothing back. Relocating with the Spirit completely. Nehemiah wants complete obedience with the people. He just wants them to follow God. 
and functioning like the Spirit. It's what the Spirit wants. And, and three times he says this, Remember me, oh my God, for good. Why does he keep praying this prayer? Because he's feeling forgotten and lost in all that he's doing. It's hard. These are plaintive cries of a man who's doing everything he can and it just doesn't seem to matter. Why is he doing everything he can? I mean, why does he get so riled up? Why is he fighting so hard? If the people don't want it, it's their loss, right? Exactly. And Nehemiah knows it. If the people reject this, it is to their loss. And Nehemiah cares so much about the people in the same way the Holy Spirit cares cares so much about you and me, He does not want to leave us alone. He doesn't want to just leave us to our own lostness. Nehemiah knew that if Israel had any hope for the future, it would be in the Lord. It's the only place they could go. Nehemiah is the last historical book of the Hebrew Scriptures. Not Esther. We're going to get to Esther coming up here before the end of the year. Next week, week after that. But Esther's not the last book. Nehemiah is. Historically, Esther happens before Nehemiah. As the book of Nehemiah closes, we have this picture of a man going, come on, guys. Come on. We've got to stick with the Lord. If we don't stick with the Lord, we are lost. Malachi is in Jerusalem at the time. Alongside Nehemiah. And Malachi closes out his book, which is the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the last prophetic book. In chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The last word of the Hebrew Scriptures is curse. Malachi closes out his prophecy seriously. Nehemiah's book ends up seriously. And then silence. And then 400 years go by. And the Lord does not speak to the people. And there is no answer. There is just silence. Not a single prophet until until John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just as Malachi prophesied. There's a lot to this. I won't get into right now. The fact that there are two Elijahs. One, John the Baptist comes in the spirit and power of Elijah, but two, Elijah himself will also come again before the great and powerful day of the Lord, before Jesus' coming. If you want to hear that, check out Revelation chapter 11 online. Go listen to that. But John the Baptist comes after 400 years of silence. After this page ends, we close the book. Nothing. Then John the Baptist, Repent! The kingdom of God is at hand, he says. Immediately, Yeshua is on the scene. Israel's Messiah. But what happened? They missed Him. The very thing Nehemiah was fighting against, the very thing Nehemiah said, don't let this happen. Stick with the Lord. The very plaintive cry of this man of God is ignored. And the people miss their Messiah. No wonder He says, remember me, O my God, for my good. Don't forget what I'm trying to do here. We can almost hear His plea in the words of Jesus echoing across 400 years that way and echoing across 2,000 years to where we sit right now when Jesus said in Luke 18, Will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? 
And will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Nehemiah is fighting for faith. How about you? How about me? Are we fighting for faith? Are we fighting for salvation? Ironside says, with this brief prayer, Nehemiah passes from our view only to appear again at the manifestation of the sons of God. We'll see Nehemiah again. And yes, God does bring justice to Nehemiah. And yes, Nehemiah, a man of faith, is saved by the cross of Jesus Christ, by his faith in God. And we will be seeing him. But you know, the the single greatest reason that we need to be filled up with the Spirit of God The single greatest reason has nothing to do with us. We get confused in the church. We think filling of the Holy Spirit is so I can have some kind of experience. So that my faith can be encouraged. So that my church can be an exciting place to visit. No. To be completely filled up with the Holy Spirit is so that the primary work of God on this earth can be accomplished. What is that? The Gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell you all, and I'm preaching to the choir. But the reason that we are to be filled with the Spirit is so that we will develop a Nehemiah heart. A heart for people who are headed down the path of destruction. Who are headed into lostness. My greatest frustration as a pastor is I don't know how to, to bring the spirit of evangelism into our fellowship. What I mean is, okay, if we truly believed what we say we believed, then wouldn't we be doubling every Sunday? People say, wow, in six years, there's, you know, several hundred, three, 350 people. If they all told, they're the bridge. That's, that's impressive. No, it's not. Not to me. In one day, there were 3,000 when the Spirit came upon the apostles. I love this church and I love doing what we're doing and I don't mean to be negative any more than Nehemiah did. (laughs) But gang, if we are in these fast waning days and when we see the amorality and we see, boy, we are so in the end times. We are deep in the end times. And if we recognize that, then we have got to look at the world roundabout and say, they are that close to hell. We've got to do something about it. And so would you join me in praying for a Nehemiah heart? We need the Spirit's power that we might become more evangelical, bringers of the Gospel, that those opportunities within our families and and among our friends to, to preach Jesus, man, we're just doing it. Not because we've generated it ourselves, but because the Spirit has filled us up. Let's pray for this. Father... I ask this right now. I am so thankful to you tonight. Thankful for so many things. Thankful for this warm barn on this stormy night. Thankful for my brothers and sisters in our fellowship here. Thankful for the time of worship, Lord. Thankful for our friendships and our families. Thankful for the beauty of the place we live. Father, I'm thankful for all of this. But my heart aches because I recognize we're not having the impact that I know we could have if we would but open ourselves to the power of Your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I'm praying to You again. And I'm asking You 
would you make us truly evangelical? Not as a subset of our culture, but evangelists, bringers of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.